Let's pray together again. Lord, what you have done for us in Christ is more than we could ask or think. It's more than we could begin to describe. And Father, I pray that you would cause the goodness of this that you've done, the goodness of the gospel, to reach down to the very roots of who we are and to make us all together new. Lord, cause us to be people whose whole lives are colored by the gospel. Make us people whose, whose every heartbeat is empowered by the gospel and cause the gospel to reach into every crevice and corner of who we are and transform us into Christ-likeness. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to sense how good and how great and how forgiving and how merciful and how, how loving you have been to us in Christ. We pray that you'd do it by your word. We pray that your spirit would cause your word to be living and active in our hearts. And we pray that the name of Christ would be exalted. Amen. Before the events of the last week in China became known, I was planning to tell you about something that happened in China in 1934 in this time of year. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Uh, the letter that I'm going to read to you is actually decided, it dated December 6th, 1934. So uh, this time of year, uh, many, many years ago, to a young couple, a young, young married couple, maybe you, uh, maybe you knew Chip Stam when he was here. It's, it's his ancestors, um, John and Betty Stam. They were fervent young believers in Jesus, and uh, they were upstanding people with a bright future, and they felt the burden of the gospel, and they were convinced that apart from the gospel, apart from the good news of the Lord Jesus, uh, people go to hell and face the wrath of God forever. And this created in them an urgency, and they felt that they must go. They must take the gospel to people who had not heard it. And at some point in their early lives, in their young lives, they had fallen in love, and they had gotten married actually on the mission field in China. And so imagine these young newlyweds with this this grand task that they are engaged upon, trying to take the gospel to people that don't have it. And they're united in this great purpose. They're advancing the cause of the Lord Jesus. And then uh, they'd been married almost a year and their, their baby daughter was born. But at that point, the communists were on the march and the, um, the communists arrived in their, in their city, and they were caught up in, in the advance of these atheistic communists, and they were, they were captured, they were held for an exorbitant rant, ransom, and when that was not paid, they were marched through the streets of the city, and they were beheaded. But in the providence of God, um, they had actually hidden their, their baby daughter 
in a, in a friend's home, and they had and and the child was able to be smuggled to safety. And this letter that was written December 6th, 1934, was found hidden in the clothes of Helen Priscilla Stam. And this is what it says. Dear brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Singte. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. Things happened so quickly this morning. They were in the city just a few hours after the ever-persistent rumors really became alarming so that we could not prepare to leave in time. We were just too late. The Lord bless and guide you. And as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. In him, John C. Stamm. I would invite you to open uh, the Bible to Romans chapter 5. And we'll be looking this morning at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And it's amazing how the first, the first line of this passage, Paul writes these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what John Stamm wrote. We praise God for peace in our hearts. This peace with God is what creates the kind of fortitude that we see John Stamm praying for and then living out as he faces death with his young bride. And what we want to ask is where this comes from. And, and Paul is going to tell us where it comes from right here in Romans chapter 5. Um, just to back up for a second and tell you where we are in this letter, uh, in the first, the first four chapters, uh, Paul has been explaining justification by faith, and he's been explaining why it is that we need to be justified by faith. So he starts by um, explaining how we're sinful, how we're guilty before God. Everyone is guilty before God. And then finally, in chapter 3, he lays out how Christ died for uh, sin. He died as a sacrifice of propitiation. And then in chapter 4, Paul focuses on, um, on how faith is what makes it so, so that someone is reckoned righteous before God. And as we come to chapter 5, you notice the first word of Romans chapter 5, verse 1 there, is the word, therefore. And then he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And it's as though that phrase, uh, since we have been justified by faith, really summarizes the first four chapters. Paul has been discussing what it is to be justified by faith. And now he's going to start discussing the life that is built off of being justified by faith. And if you, if you start counting words in, in, these, in these chapters, it's amazing um, how the words faith and believe, they, they happen around 25 times in the first four chapters. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he, it's, it's like he stops talking about faith and believing. He's established that. He starts talking about life and living. 
And those words, life and live, they occur almost 25 times in chapters 5 through 8, whereas uh, life and live had only shown up uh, a couple of times in Romans 1 through 4, and, um, and, and similarly, faith and believe only, only occur three times or so in Romans 5 through 8. So it's like he's, he's really focusing on justification by faith in chapters 1 through 4, and then he starts talking about the life that's built on being justified by faith in chapters 5 through 8. Um, so we're going to look at, at the first 11 verses of this passage, and Paul is going to lay out for us the results of justification in verses 1 through 5, everything that we have as a result of justification. And then in verses 6 through 8, he's going to lay out the basis of those results, where it comes from. He's going to talk about Christ dying for us. And then in verses 9 through 11, he's going to apply this to the future. So Paul in this passage is dealing with the present first in verses 1 through 5, and then the past in verses 6 through 8, and then the future in verses 9 through 11. So look with me at, at Romans 5, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is the first thing Paul says. And the reason this is the first thing Paul says is because he feels the enormity of this. If, if, we, if we think about what it is to have peace, it, it means we're no longer at enmity. We're no longer enemies with God. And if we think about what it, is to be, what it is to have an enemy or to be at enmity with someone, the more powerful the enemy is, the more dangerous and scary that enemy is. So if your enemy is just some crazy guy on the street, they may or may not be powerful. They may or may not be armed. We don't know, but we can, we can protect ourselves against some crazy guy that's unpredictable on the street. But if your enemy is, let's say, a world leader, someone like Alexander, uh, uh, Alexander Vladimir Putin, well, he's dangerous, isn't he? And he's powerful. And, and he may have a lot of intelligence. Just this weekend, there was, there was a report about the Chinese hacking into Navy intelligence, uh, that, again, that's a powerful enemy that, that, can, that can do a lot of damage. They can be very dangerous. Well, then if, if we take this up into a supernatural sphere and we consider if our enemy is Satan, well, he's going to have a lot of intelligence. He's going to have a lot of power. He's a frightful enemy. But imagine if your enemy is actually almighty, omnipotent, and omnipresent and omniscient, and fully justified, and altogether in the right. What I'm saying to you is imagine if you are enemies with Almighty God, and He's right, and you're wrong, and you are totally helpless against Him. And then He does something that brings about total and complete reconciliation. Reconciliation that puts a complete end to the hostility. That's what God has done. And that's why the first benefit of being just, justified by faith that Paul names here in Romans 5.1 is having peace with God. Paul is saying, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
There is no one who could do more damage to us than God. There is no one with a longer list of grievances against us than God. There is no one whose grievances against us are more justified than God's list of grievances. He is altogether pure and righteous and holy. And yet what he has done in Christ makes it so that we have peace with God. This, this, this ought to be revolutionary for us. This ought to create in us. If we, if we come to understand, you, you remember this, that, that parable that I alluded to uh, last week or the week before, I can't remember which. Jesus tells that story about the guy who had that massive debt. And the guy calls him in and he says, your, your wife and your children are going to be sold into slavery and you're going to be sold into slavery and every last cent is going to be repaid. And the guy falls on his face and he says, give me time. Show me mercy and I'll pay you everything. And the the the, the, the guy that's in charge here, he forgives the whole debt. And then the guy, the, the guy forgiven, he goes out and he acts like we would act, doesn't he? There's, there's someone who owes him this, this pitiful little sum and he demands that it be repaid. He's not evidencing the fruits of justification. If we get this, if we get what it is to be at peace with God, well, the people that have grievances against us, We'll be ready to make things right, won't we? Because God has made things right with us. We, we, we'll be ready to, to say, whatever my part in this that I did wrong, I'm ready to own up to. I, I'm not the only person doing wrong here because I'm not the only sinner involved. We're all sinners. But the part that I'm responsible for, I'm ready to apologize for. If we're people that have really understood justification by faith and understand what it is to have peace with God, that'll be our posture. We'll be humble people who are able to build relational bridges with others because we're ready to, to repent and apologize. But, the, but the, real, the real gift here is having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again in this passage, things are going to come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 1, Paul says, all right, we've been justified by faith, and we've been looking in Romans 4 at how this works. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, uh, the, the, the sin that you've committed got imputed to Jesus, and he got crucified for it, and the righteousness that he achieved in his perfect life gets reckoned to you, and you're reckoned forgiven, and you're reckoned righteous. That's what it is to be justified, to be put in the right by faith. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So the hostility is over. And then, then it's not just an end to hostility. Uh, uh, maybe I've, I've shared with you this story. I'll never forget the first time that I ever had lunch at the Moeller's house. It was a new faculty, it was a new faculty lunch. And um, my wife and I were there. And um, Dr. Russell Moore was there. And, and Dr. Moore had this long-standing relationship with Dr. Moeller. He had related closely to him. And, and frankly, he acted like he was Dr. Moeller's own son at lunch. I mean, he came in, and we're all minding our P's and Q's, being on our best behavior, you know. And, and Dr. Moore comes in, and he's boisterous, and he's loud, and he's saying all these crazy things. And we're just kind of like, wow, this guy, what is he doing? How's he acting like this in front of Dr. Moeller? But, but he's, he's acting like someone who is in Dr. Moeller's favor. He's in his good graces. Look at verse 2. 
Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So it's not just that we have peace with God. He's no longer at war with us. We have access by faith into this grace. Now, I'm not advising you to walk into God's throne room and start acting like Dr. Moore, Dr. Moore acted in Dr. Moeller's house, but you are in God's good graces. If you are someone who has been justified by faith, you can be confident that God looks favorably upon you because you've been united to Christ and Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you so that when God looks at you, he regards you as he would regard the Lord Jesus himself. That statement Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, he says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, which means you're at peace with God, and it means you're, you're in his favor. You have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in God's grace. That's who you are. You are someone to whom the Father in heaven, the omnipotent Lord, the creator of the world, the ultimate authority, he is favorably disposed toward you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So it's like Paul is, is going to stair step up here. First step, peace with God. Second step, grace. Next step, it starts taking us into behavior. How do we respond to this? Well, if things are this good, we're going to rejoice is how we respond. In the middle of verse 2 there, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This, the, this hope of the glory of God that Paul is talking about, I think Paul has in view here the day when all the evidence will be brought forth, when all of God's reasons for making the world that he did, for causing the things to, that have happened in the world to happen, the, God's reasons for making us as tall as we are or as small as we are, as wide as we are, as slim as we are, or as smart as we are, or as dumb as we are, everything that God has ever orchestrated in all creation, God's reasons for doing all this are going to be brought out. And the sufferings and the tribulations and the trials and the disappointments and the sadnesses, God's purposes in all of it, are gonna, it's all going to be laid out. And, and this, this cosmic plan that, that is comprehensive in scope is suddenly going to be revealed. And it's going to radiate with God's glory. All of God's goodness his wisdom, his ability, and his faithfulness is finally going to be displayed. So, so Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, why, why would Paul put it this way? Why would he talk about the hope of the glory of God? Because we don't see it right now. 
What we see right now looks like counter-evidence against the idea that God is wise. It looks like counter-evidence against the idea that God is good. Counter-evidence against the idea that God is faithful. So people, we, we live in this world and people look at what happens in their lives and they say, I don't like this. I don't want it to be this way. But we, who have been justified by faith, who have peace with God who have obtained access by faith into his grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope that one day, it's all going to make sense. One day, God is going to be vindicated, and everybody is going to agree he's faithful, able, wise, and good. And we rejoice in the hope of that glory being put on display. So, so yeah, there's counter-evidence. But we're walking by faith, aren't we? We're trusting. We're trusting what the Scriptures tell us. We're trusting what we have experienced by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we take the next stair step up in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, how does that come about? Well, that comes about by trusting that God is good that God is faithful, that God is wise, and that God must have some good purpose for my suffering. So I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to rejoice in it. And this is what we have seen from our, our brother and sister in China that maybe you read about this week. This guy, Wang Yi, who could see the way that things were developing. And so back in September, September 21st, He wrote this document that maybe you read, and then he revised it on October 4th, and then he made a plan. He said, if I get detained and they keep me for more than 48 hours, you release this letter. And now here here the letter is. And, and, And he speaks in here about his objectives, and he speaks in this letter about how he feels joy, and he senses a purpose for 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 what he is enduring. He says, if I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. In other words, he's going to tell these guys the gospel. He's going to explain Christianity to them. And so he's, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. And he knows what they're going to do to him. He, he outlines in here everything that, that, that the state, the Chinese government, can do for him. He says, they can separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead. And, and, and so this guy is testifying, really, he's, he's living out Romans 5, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, rejoicing in sufferings. And then Paul explains more about this rejoicing in sufferings here in verse 3. 
He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. What Paul is saying is, when, when this happens to you, when, when things go wrong, and you trust the Lord, and you persevere, you experience God's presence with you, and you experience God's goodness in your life, and then the next time, and you get brought through it by God in His power and faithfulness, and then the next time things go wrong, you look back on that previous experience, and you say, well, I made it through that, and the Lord sustained me, so it's a little bit easier to endure it this time. And then it becomes habitual that when things go wrong, you start to think, what's the Lord going to do in me, through me, for my character? How's the Lord going to build me up? I'm going to rejoice and trust him through this. I may not like it. You, you may be like Job who is shaving his head and he's falling on his face and he's mourning and he's rejoicing and he's not charging God with wrong. So, so the rejoicing, I'm not suggesting it's always going to be glib. It's not going to be always happy. But if you belong to God, if you've been justified by faith, this will be the pattern of your experience. I'm confident to say that however you respond, because the Lord's not going to let you go. Paul said the one who started the good work is going to finish the good work. So I'm confident to say it is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to transform you. And, and you are going, to, if you belong to God, you are going to become somebody who rejoices in the midst of your sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing there's something we do. We know, we trust, we believe, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the kind of character that we're dealing with is a resiliency that says, whatever comes at me in my life, I'm going to rejoice through it. Whatever comes at me in my life, I'm going to trust the Lord through it. Whatever comes at me in my life, I mean, it's like this, this pastor, Wang Yi, saying, they can't make me renounce the faith. It's, it's, it's really, it's like what happened with Daniel. And, and those three young men who were carried off to Babylon. And, and they threatened those guys with death. And, and, and those guys' reaction is, you can kill us and it's not going to make us worship your God. And, and even, if, even if we were to worship your God, it wouldn't do us any good. They believe in the one true and living God. Their hearts are held captive to Him. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Years ago, when, when I was in seminary, 1997, a long time ago, I was training to run a marathon. And, and I'll never forget how, as I first began to train, this was miserable. It was, it was so awful, so painful. And then it's like you start having these breakthroughs. Like, that wasn't so bad. I ran for 40 minutes. I feel great. And then the next day, you're like, I got to do my run today. 
And, and then there was, one, there was a, a time in the training when a guy that was further along with me, he was a better runner than me, we went, we went and did this 10-mile race together, and he dragged me through that race. But as he dragged me through that race, and I did everything I could to keep up with him, uh, my friend Mark Ackerman, it killed me. But that race was such a breakthrough. After that 10-mile race, I felt like I was floating when I would go for these 40-minute these runs every day training for this, this marathon. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What keeps you running in life is this growing confidence. I can do this because I've done it before. I can go harder. I can go faster. I can smile through this because I've made it before. And hope does not put us to shame. So when, when Paul says in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame, what he's saying is this is not some glib optimism that is unwarranted. I'm an optimist, and sometimes I'll, be, I'll have a really positive attitude about something, and, uh, and some comment will be made, oh, you always think things are going to work out just because you're an optimist, you know, and this is, I'm sort of dismissed uh, like this sometimes in my house. But... But we're talking here about a hope that does not put us to shame. And the reason the hope doesn't put us to shame, look at the middle of verse 5, because God's love, I, I actually think the, I think the New American Standard is better here. It has the love of God. And, and, and I think that's better because uh, God's love limits it to the love that God shows to us. But if it's phrased, the love of God, then that can be, yes, God's love that he extends to us, but then, then it's our response also of love to him. And, and I think both are in view here. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, yes, God has shown us enormous love, but yes, we also respond with love to God. And that's why we're not put to shame. That's why our, not, our hope is not just some, some foundationless optimism that everything's going to work out okay. No, this is a hope in God. This is a hope that's founded on God's promises, on God's word, on God's character, on what God has done for us in Christ, which Paul is about to talk about. But before we talk about that, notice here how in 5.1... We have peace with God. I think he's talking mainly about the Father there. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's through Christ that we have peace. His death on the cross. In verse 2, through him, through Christ, we've obtained access by faith into this grace. So it's because of Jesus that we're in God's favor. And then now in verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So all three members of the Godhead, there's this, this technical phrase that people talk about when they talk about the Trinity. They talk about the inseparable operations of the members of the Godhead. Inseparable operations. It means that all three members of the Godhead are at work in our salvation. That's what's going on right here. The Father's wrath is being propitiated through the death of the Son, and then God's love is being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We are not deists. Uh, we, are, we are not Muslims. We believe in the Trinity. And we believe in the Trinity because the Bible teaches it. God has always existed as a triune God. 
three persons who share one divine nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one shared divine nature. And this is what we confess at the end of the service every week. Let me think with you for just a moment about what it would be not to respond as Paul describes here. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What would it be not to have peace with God? It would be to be anxious about your standing with God. And let's, let's just deconstruct that anxiety. Where would that anxiety come from? I think it would come either from not being fully convinced that you can trust Jesus, not being fully convinced that he's done everything the Bible says he's done, or perhaps not being fully convinced that you can trust God. And, and not being convinced that you can trust him, doesn't it say maybe he's not trustworthy? Maybe he won't keep his word. And I think that's what spins us into anxiety. We don't want to call God's character into question. We want to fully embrace this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ precisely because we're convinced of his character. Precisely because of who he is. This is not about us and how, how faithful or reliable we are. It's all about him and whether we believe what the Bible says about him. We don't want to declare that we don't think he's faithful. We don't want to declare that we think we know better than he knows. And we don't want to declare that we don't think he's good or that we don't think he's able. Well, yeah, he means well. He means to keep his word, but I'm not sure he's able to do it. That's what unbelief is. That's where anxiety comes from. Yeah, he's trying to come up with a good plan, but I don't think he's got the best plan for resolving history and taking care of my life. That's going to be a source of anxiety. And what we need to do is that's the kind of stuff that we need to put off and then put on this, this new way of thinking, be renewed in our minds so that we're confident. No, God is faithful. God is able. God is wise. God is good. And I can trust him. And I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have access by faith into this grace in which I stand. So I'm going to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And Paul tells us why we should do this in verses 6 through 8. He says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You know why he says while we were still weak? He's saying to us, you didn't create the peace. You didn't do what was necessary to establish reconciliation. While we were weak, and then at the right time, God has this, this orchestrated plan that is all-encompassing. It is comprehensive. And at just the right moment, Jesus comes. Christ died for the ungodly. There's that word again. Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then uh, Romans 4, to the, verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. How can God justify the ungodly? Well, because Romans 5 
6 here, Christ died for the ungodly. We were not pious. We were not reverent. We were not worshiping as we should. We were not taking steps in the right direction, and Christ died for us. He, cre- he created the reconciliation. And then Paul talks about how enormously surprising this is. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. You know why he says that? He says that because we're not righteous people. We're not good people. He's emphasizing how amazing it is that the Lord Jesus would die for us. Some, if you think somebody's a good person, they deserve to die, you might risk your life for them. That's not why Jesus put himself forward for us. Jesus put himself forward for us because we're not righteous. We're not good. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not righteous, not good, sinners. This is God's love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 8 again. God shows his love for us. Verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Again, the inseparable operations of the members of the Godhead. Christ died for us as a demonstration of God's love for us, and that's applied to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul has talked about the present in verses 1 through 5, this peace with God we, we have, this favor with God. You know, if, if, if you're here and, and, and you're iffy about this, you're not sure you can trust that you stand in God's favor, I would encourage you to memorize this passage. You should memorize and meditate on these words. You, you should let these words run through your head while you're standing in the, in the shower or sitting at a stoplight or whatever. These words will change your life. To know that you've been justified by faith, that you have peace with God, that you stand in his favor, that when you couldn't do anything to save yourself, when you were weak and you were a sinner, God showed his love for you by sending forward Christ to die for you at just the right time. And then verses 9 through 11, Paul applies this to the future. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's talking about the end time demonstration of wrath. He's talking about the wrath that's going to be poured out for eternity future against the wicked who don't repent. And he's saying... If we've been justified by his blood now, how much more will we be saved from that wrath of God in the future? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that's, there's the enemy, right? Verse 1, we have peace with God because we were enemies and we were weak, verse 6, and we were sinners, verse 8, and we were enemies, verse 10. But in spite of all that, Verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And the life of Jesus that he's talking about is the life that we looked at at the end of chapter 4 last week. Verse 25 of chapter 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses or because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. This resurrection life of Jesus, because he's accomplished justification, is unassailable. Jesus will not die again. He cannot be overcome. Death has no claim on him because he is utterly sinless. 
And that life guarantees our future salvation. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God through, there's that again, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace. In in verse 9, when the ESV renders it, much more shall we be saved by him, they could translate that through him from the wrath of God. Verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ we rejoice in God. If this world is everything to us, if we think that what ultimately matters is how long we live or how much pleasure we can have here or how, how much we can elevate other people's opinion of us because of what we do here or how many people, know, how famous we are and how long we're going to be famous. If, we, if this world, if this world is everything to us, you're never going to rejoice in your suffering. And you're never going to persevere in character. But if, if the world to come becomes, and, it, and if the, the world of the Bible begins to eclipse the significance of this world, it will be because you've come to understand that your biggest problem is that you are an enemy of God. And that biggest problem has been resolved by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if that happens for you, then you'll be ready to say with Pastor Wang Yi something like this. He says, the goal of disobedience, and the disobedience that he's talking about is continuing to worship, continuing to preach the gospel. That's disobedience according to the Chinese government continuing to meet with the church that's unregistered and insubmissive to the wicked government that's telling them to stop doing that. That, that's the, so just to be clear, he's not doing something unrighteous in his disobedience. He's obeying God rather than man. And he says, the goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. And that other world the world, of the, the world of the Bible, the world to come, the world that acknowledges God, that's the important world. And that's the world that this passage is dealing with. We want to be people who understand how significant God is and who therefore feel the force of what it is to have peace with God, to have access by faith into the grace of God. And you know, one of, the ways, one of the ways to grow in our understanding of this is to see what the Bible calls us to and then to try to live it out. And as you see what the Bible calls you to, the Bible, the Bible says, for instance, God has reconciled us to himself and he's made us agents of reconciliation. And you start, acting, you start trying to act like an agent of reconciliation and you're going to realize how hard this is. Because you're going to start feeling, wow, I'm a really selfish, self-centered, nasty person. And I need something powerful to change all that in me. 
And, and, and you're going to have to lean on passages like this. You're going to need these kinds of truths to make you willing to go there with people that you know they don't want to go there in the conversation. And, and there may be people that you need to, you need to apologize to. There, there may be ways that you need to acknowledge, I have done a lot of harm to this relationship. I have caused a lot of friction here. I have been nasty and wicked for a long time, and then I acted like it didn't even matter. And in order for you to come to a place where you're ready to say, I'm in the wrong, and I understand why you don't like me, and I understand why you don't trust me, and I understand why you don't really maybe even want to listen to what I'm saying to you right now. In order for you to come to a place where you can say that, you're going to have to embrace truths that are in this passage. You're going to have to feel the weight of being reconciled to God when you were an enemy. And if you come to understand, I was an enemy, I was the problem, and God sent Jesus and made peace and then brought me into his favor, then it's going to be not easy. I started to say it's going to be easy. It's not easy. It's going to be possible by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for you to look at somebody that you think, that's my enemy. But you're going to be ready to say, God, recon- God made reconciliation with me when I was an enemy. That's my enemy. I'm going to make peace with them. I'm ready to take on Christ's likeness in this situation. And what, requi- what was required in that situation for him was for him to be crucified. And you're going to be ready to say, I'm going to take up the cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to apologize what I need to apologize for. And I'm going to listen to things that I don't want to hear. And I'm going to try to love and care for this person and understand this person and try to rebuild trust and rebuild a relationship here. These truths will change our lives. Let's pray. Father, would you make us people who know that we have peace with you, who know that we stand in your grace, who rejoice in the hope of your glory, who rejoice in our sufferings. And Lord, would you cause us to be this way because we know that this suffering is going to produce endurance and this endurance is going to produce character and that character is going to produce hope and the hope is not going to disappoint because your love has been poured into our hearts and we are being made like Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.